Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Lives at risk as blistering heat scorches southern Europe. Government advisor calls for a major rethink on new road building. Labour Group proposes nationalising 500,000 private homes. And the government promises a crackdown on rip-off university degrees. My name is Sarah Chudder. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top UK architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in the Design District is George Kapka. George is a writer and future observatory curator at the Design Museum. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you, Saiba. I'm a long-time listener, so it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. This July has been a weather record breaker, with searing temperatures sweeping across swathes of the planet, affecting regions from Texas to Italy, offering a glimpse of what scientists warn will become an increasingly common phenomenon. This story has received coverage around the world as record-breaking temperatures, the hottest the planet has experienced in 120,000 years, continue to spark wildfires and threaten lives. On Tuesday, The Guardian's rolling coverage of the extreme weather event reported that the Italian island of Sardinia experienced a blistering 46 degrees centigrade, the highest ever temperature recorded in Europe. Meanwhile, Greece fought to control wildfires near Athens, which were heightened by strong winds. Even tourist attractions in the capital were forced to close as temperatures rocketed into the 40s. Professor Christopher Hewitt from the World Meteorological Organization said, quote, We are in uncharted territory and that is worrying news for the planet. Another research fellow, Carsten Haustein from Leipzig University, helped put the significance of recent events into perspective. She said, quote, The chances are that the month of July will be the hottest month ever, ever meaning since the Emenian interglacial period, which is some 120,000 years ago. Researchers investigating the effects of two degrees of global warming, a temperature rise that many scientists believe we are currently heading towards, have meanwhile issued a warning about the urgent need for adaptation in countries like Britain and Switzerland, which will experience the greatest relative increase in uncomfortably hot days. Their findings indicate that the UK is projected to experience a staggering 30% rise in uncomfortably hot days. However, the study also emphasises that neither the population nor the infrastructure is adequately prepared to cope with these increasingly common hot weather events. So, George, what's this all about? Could this be the first truly global heatwave? And why is it so significant that societies around the world are experiencing the irreversible impacts of climate change simultaneously? So, yeah, I mean, the hottest day in 120,000 years uh, certainly sounds like a truly global heatwave. Uh, as you point out, what's interesting about this is that it's all happening um, at the same time across lots of different 
context. It's this reminder that dealing with the climate emergency is not something that can be done on an individual, national or even continental basis. And I think what's even more striking about this is that people really feel it. It becomes very embodied when it's a global heat wave, um, as opposed to something like um, rising sea levels or biodiversity loss, which we can read about, but we don't necessarily here in, in the UK, for example, um, notice on a day to day level. And I think, you know, maybe this week hasn't been as hot in the UK, but we all remember last summer, um, really intense heat waves and how distressing that was for, for a lot of people. It's something that really brings home the reality um, of this changing climate uh, on a global scale. And yeah, I think it, it, it reminds us that this is something that we have to think about um, in conjunction with other contexts. Like we are going to see um, an increase in, in climate refugees coming to the UK. Um, we are going to have to actually think more globally about our responses here and not just on an individually uh, national level. Yeah, like you say, the, there's extreme wildfires destroying homes, so people are being displaced. There's a potential for tens of thousands of people to die from heat stress. At what point do events like these become recognised as global health crises on the same scale as something like the COVID pandemic, for example? Yeah, I think this is something that we are starting to see happen already. Like City Hall, um, the Mayor of London's office, have a kind of uh, City Hall Cool Spaces scheme, uh, which is a map which anyone can look at, which actually shows where people can go to, to go and cool down for health reasons. It's a really interesting um, way of looking at our city. So you can see parks there, you can see the river, but you can also see places like community centres, libraries and religious spaces, which are offering facilities for people to go into and cool down. And um, those are air-conditioned spaces, they might have water, they might have places to rest. And what's interesting there is you can also learn about what makes cities cool down. So it's the areas around parks, as well as parks themselves, which tend to be cooler. So you can see the impact that kind of green infrastructure has. So I think if we can see more of that kind of information made available um, on a global scale, that's the kind of response we need to address this as a health issue. Will we see that? I don't know. I mean, I think when we saw, you know, responses to the COVID pandemic did quickly become quite nationalised um, in some senses. Um, so I'd like to think that that would happen and we'd have this kind of increase in, in considering extreme heat as a health issue. Um, I'm not too sure. Mm. It was interesting what you said about the, that City Hall Cool Spaces map, which is great that they're doing that and that there is information there. But it, does that feel to you a little bit like a sort of sticking plaster, just saying, okay, your home's too hot, here's a cool place you can go to? You know, what would you expect to see? You know, what's the next step from that? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think it's it's a good start making this a kind of conversation of of civic responsibility and a public problem rather than something that can be individualised. As we've seen in other contexts, like there will probably be a stratification of um, access to sort of temperate or, or comfortable environments. So um, people who have access to air conditioning um, will be privileged over those that that don't have that. I imagine the next step will need to be better architectural responses, better responses in the, in the broader built environment. These will take much, much longer and require bigger cultural shifts. Yeah, definitely. I think the lag that we're on just seems to be kind of increasing um, as we encounter these extreme events. Um, for example, in Texas on Monday, demand for electricity reached a record high um, with people cranking up their air conditioning to cope with the heat, those kind of privileged people that you're talking about. But are there more sustainable alternatives for keeping people cool? I mean, you've talked about these kind of cool spaces. Um, you know, what other alternatives are there and what might they look like in, in the built environment? Yeah, this is one of those things I feel like weirdly optimistic about. There are loads of ways of passively cooling buildings that we know how to do this. Things like wind towers, cross breezes, shading, insulation. People 
people have been building um, for hot climates for hundreds and thousands um, of years. So we we know lots of clever ways to do this, which aren't energy intensive. Um, and there are great architects that are doing that, that are using these techniques as well. If we think about the work of like Francis Carey um, in Burkina Faso, his uh, Lycée Georges, probably mispronouncing that, um, but it uses a, a wide number of these techniques. And, and I really recommend people having a look at that project. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. There's a kind of urban grain that you get in other hotter countries that we just simply we don't have here in some of the new build environments, maybe um, kind of tighter city cores, you have those narrower streets, which can kind of provide self shading. Um, do you think this impact, you know, needs to be on a lot of the things that are currently going through the planning process? Do you think there needs to be a kind of review of some of the big big housing projects that are coming through i think that would be an example of the kind of next step on from the heat map that you're talking about actually taking this heat rising heat seriously as a as a structural issue something that can be addressed in the built environment i think it would be really refreshing excuse the pun to like see that being taken into discussions around planning actually taking seriously the longer term future of this city and of this country do our planners and politicians have that kind of foresight i'm not sure i'd like to think so but i'm not sure the UK's non-departmental climate change committee has called for a comprehensive re-evaluation of nationwide road building plans in the wake of Wales's world-leading road policy, which was introduced earlier this year. The industry website, the Construction Index, reported that the committee, as the government's independent advisory body on climate, released its annual report this month highlighting the need for a strategic review of upcoming road projects. The Climate Change Committee argues that only projects which actively advance progress towards net zero should be allowed to go ahead. This echoes a similar policy adopted by the Welsh Government earlier this year, which saw 31 out of 48 road projects reviewed, cancelled on environmental grounds, and a further six projects currently being reconsidered. In their report, the CCC explicitly called on the government to implement, quote, stringent tests that will only permit new road projects if they will meaningfully contribute to that modal shift, reducing emissions and adapting to the impacts of climate change. However, despite these calls for a more environmentally conscious approach to road construction, plans for a road tunnel near Stonehenge were approved by the Department for Transport just last week. The 1.7 billion two-mile tunnel is set to connect Amesbury to Berwick Down in Wiltshire, with Highways England claiming that it will alleviate congestion and shorten travel times on the A303, a road that passes by the iconic prehistoric monument. So, George, what's this all about? Should only transport projects that advance the path towards net zero be allowed to go ahead? And what would that mean for schemes like the Stonehenge Tunnel? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, it's it's very easy for, for me to say, you know, in the short term, uh, there should be no more new roads and, and anything that like makes life easier for motorists um, should be should be cancelled. Um, you know, speaking here from London, if you look out the window here at Greenwich Design District, you can see sort of four or five different forms of public transport, including a cable car and a boat. So we have ama- you know, amazing access to this public transport. But if I had to drive everywhere, I'm sure I would feel feel very differently. And this is perhaps the point, you know, if we are going to talk about cancelling road um, development, then we need to be seeing, you know, a massive increase in investment in amazing new public transport systems. And I think that's what this kind of Welsh example is. Um, they've kind of stalled a lot of development on uh, new road development and are, are trying to encourage um, what they describe as a modal shift. Uh, so from um, using cars to to buses and other kind of systems of public transport. So I think, you know, these conversations have to happen hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, people love big infrastructure projects like tunnels. They get excited about them, don't they? Um, Over the past 25 years, the number of cars in the UK has risen by nearly 40%. 
if growth continues at the same pace, we could have 45 million cars on British roads by 2045. The number of cars dipped during the pandemic, but numbers are starting to creep back up again. Um, meanwhile, electric car manufacturers are pushing the idea that personal rapid transport can deliver a sustainable future. Is there anything you think that policymakers can do, George? I think, again, it's about investment in public transport and perhaps rethinking what we mean by public transport. I mean, public transport, you know, you mentioned individual ownership of electric cars there. And I think public transport can include things like car sharing. You know, I'm, I'm a van owner myself. I love driving. Um, I, I'm not saying that people shouldn't have, you know, access to cars. But we should perhaps make it, make it seem ludicrous to own your own car uh, because the alternatives are so affordable, comfortable um, and, and convenient. That's what I would do. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And what about electric cars? What's your take on them? Because I know they're seen as a sort of maybe the saviour of the motoring industry, but there are definite issues around mineral mining for batteries and so on. So um, what's your take on on, on them being the kind of uh, saviour of the car industry? Yeah, I mean, apart from the eerie silence, which they have as they as they drive around the city, um, I think there's there's numerous problems there. I think the current way that we're pursuing electric cars is a is a like-for-like like shift, which allows us to kind of grow other road infrastructure. So, you know, if everyone is um, shifting to electric cars we're not necessarily going to reduce the traffic we're not going to be in a situation where we're not digging a tunnel under Stonehenge um, and that's not to mention as you point out like the the heavy metals and rare earth minerals that are used for electric car batteries mm. and I think with all green technologies there's a need to kind of think carefully about what is what are the extractive processes um, that are going into producing these things um, again this is part of a much broader cultural shift that we're going through um, from a design perspective actually of you know thinking about where do the materials come from that we that we are using on a day-to-day -day basis um, and, you know, can we trace those back to um, problematic or environmentally damaging sources? So, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's complicated. I think they, they reduce emissions. They're better for air quality. They are kind of net better than the uh, you know, diesel or, or um, other petrol engines. But there is a need to talk about electric cars with some scepticism and some concern, I think. Yeah, OK. And I mean, you've picked up there already on uh, the idea of congestion and that links into um, my next question to you which was going to be about the transport secretary Mark Harper who controversially said last week that councils should consider scrapping some of the low traffic neighbourhoods um, because they are quote making it difficult for motorists but a recent report in The Guardian said that contrary to popular belief councillors and local po politicians who support them do better at the polls or, do, or don't suffer at the polls um, so why do you think these low traffic neighbourhoods are so divisive and how important are they on the path to net zero? Yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting report. One of those kind of classic media storms or kind of um, hot button issues that politicians kind of claim is a big issue in, in people's everyday lives. Um, but actually, when someone does a bit of research, they realise that people are quite pro them. I think why they're so divisive is really interesting. I think, as we've said before, people really care about their cars. It's an important part of their culture, their day-to-day -day life, their way of navigating the world. Um, so that is understandable. But I think there's also something really interesting about the low-traffic neighbourhoods, which is how they might be presenting an image of a kind of a better future. Um, so typically when we think of like a sustainable or regenerative future, we tend to think of it in terms of, of sort of austerity and sacrifice and having to give things up and drink oat milk and these kinds of things. But actually with the low traffic neighbourhoods, 
people that are living in them are actually kind of experiencing this this quieter, greener, more peaceful, better place um, to live. And part of me was wondering if this is actually why they're so divisive is because they're really effective and they're quite a threat to people's kind of understanding of why they should be caring about a kind of a more environmentally friendly future. This is a sign that actually life could perhaps get better. Mm. Um, if we rethink the way that we're living, which is potentially quite politically dangerous for people that are invested in maintaining the status quo. A pressure group within the Labour Party has issued a bold statement urging the government to buy half a million private rental properties in order to tackle the housing crisis. According to the website Landlord Today, the Fabian Society, a group aligned with the right of the Labour Party, has issued a compelling statement insisting a future government should earmark £15 billion over a 10-year period to purchase 500,000 private rental properties and convert them into social housing. The 58-page report, which looks at ending poverty and regional inequality in England, emphasised a locally-led approach and stipulated the focus should be on homes that are empty, non-decent or energy inefficient. As part of this radical proposal, the Fabian Society advocates for offering tax reliefs or exemptions to participating local authorities and housing associations. This strategic move would free up funds for essential refurbishments and energy efficiency improvements. The comprehensive policy statement also called for, quote, stronger renter protections and greater security of tenure, including the abolition of Section 21 eviction powers and increased notice period for evictions and a permanent ban on winter evictions. To strengthen the powers of tenants, the society also advocated for landlords to make a relocation payment to tenants forced to move out either because the landlord is selling or is moving into the property themselves. The statement said, quote, These payments should be worth at least two months' rent. Relocation payments will shift power to tenants, protecting them from landlords seeking to exploit unaffordable rent increases to circumvent security for tenants. So, George, what do you make of these proposals put forward by the Fabian Society? Would you like to see more private rents in London, for example, transformed into social housing? I certainly would. Um, I think this is a really fascinating proposal. I'm particularly interested in that part of it, which is looking at empty uh, non-decent or energy inefficient homes. So this isn't just a proposal for building new homes on unused land, but actually there's potentially a sort of revolutionary retrofit scheme um, in this proposal. So this isn't only a call for social housing, but also for renovations of the pre-existing housing stock, which we're going to need for you know the next couple of generations. This is an, an energy efficient way um, of providing new housing while preventing demolition, restoring the pre-existing ho- housing stock, which comes with a whole series of you know potentially interesting architectural responses as well. And I think anything that's calling for, you know, a better deal for for renters um, is is something that we should be we should be supporting. Yeah, but I mean this is pretty radical stuff in there. What, how easy do you think something like this would be to implement, you know, realistically given I guess the sort of status that being a landlord um, has, I think it's probably aspirational to quite a lot of people to be able to own one and live in one, uh, own one that you can rent out and live in your own home as well. Um, you know, is this kind of slightly crazy pie in the sky stuff? Possibly, yeah. I think it would, like, as with a lot of these things that we've been discussing, like require a large cultural shift. Landlords have a lot of power. The idea of home ownership has a lot of power, but that's also not an inevitable position. That's not an inevitable cultural position. That's something that has developed over the last 30 years. And in previous generations, we have seen um, huge populations of this country living in, in publicly owned housing. There's no reason um, why we, we couldn't imagine that again. 
And I think, you know, the fact that this is coming from the Fabian Society, um, a kind of, you know, on the right of the Labour Party, um, really shows that this is a kind of a, a becoming a more mainstream position, like the extent of the housing crisis is, is being felt across the board, and there's a real need for radical thinking. Pie in the sky, perhaps, um, is one way of thinking about it. I think um, a much needed breath of fresh air, perhaps. Yeah. And I mean, there's a funding argument um, with around 30 billion every year being spent on housing benefit. Could that 15 billion cost that they're suggesting spread over 10 years represent better value for money than the current scenario? I mean, it seems like to- totally like common sense, doesn't it? I mean, that fifteen billion pounds over ten years would also eventually come back in returns on on rents, um, maintaining the housing stock. I mean, it also would work wonders for for communities. I mean, this we know that people are getting priced out of London the whole time. Gentrification is something which is led by the market, and so actually, kind of having some sort of structure which allows people to stay put will be better for London in the long term. Um, I think both economically and socially. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the discussion around the housing crisis focuses more on building. So it's quite rare for politicians and experts to be turning that spotlight on reforming ownership instead. Um, but with more than a million households on social waiting or social housing waiting lists, will building new homes ever solve the problem on its own? It's hard to see how it will. Um, I think like house building, again, is not something that happens in a vacuum. It is something which is dictated by the market. And we know that house builders are you know, influenced by, by demand um, and they hold on to land and, and kind of use it when it makes business sense for them. It's not, it's not like we can just say we, we need 300,000 new homes, click our fingers and they appear. Like The market still dictates when that and how that happens. So they're not incentivized to build at affordable rents and they're not kind of incentivized to think ecologically either. I think this is the other thing which is, as I said before, so interesting about this proposal is that there's a real environmental argument here. Um, and actually, the way that a mass house building is happening um, is still in quite an a, a, um, environmentally damaging way, considering the materials used. That's a good point. I mean, the I mean, the other interesting thing about the Fabian Society report, and it was covered in the Landlord Today article, was that they want a national landlord register that covers the entire private rental sector, including holiday lets and Airbnbs and um, that sort of thing. So what's your take on that? Because that's been slightly a kind of cowboy market of um, of rental. Yeah, I think that anything that creates a more stable system for people that are renting that actually makes renting feel less exploitative um, and like a, uh, a respectable, um, regulated, controlled way of, of living and existing is is something that, that should be supported. I mean, we see it in other in other countries, in other European countries, rental models, um, which actually work for people throughout a whole lifetime. We used to have that here in this country with public housing, social housing. Obviously, that's been decimated over the last decades. I, I see no reason why we couldn't rebuild um, a system where people are, are renting comfortably, safely and for, for many, many years. Rishi Sunak has pledged to put a stop to UK universities, quote, taking advantage of students with low quality degrees. This story has gained traction across the British media, with The Times, Independent and Daily Mail all weighing in. Under Sunak's plans, new limits will be imposed on courses with high dropout rates or a low proportion of people attaining a professional job upon graduation. The government will also look into graduate salaries when deciding if the degree offers enough value. The independent regulator, the Office for Students, will be empowered with the authority to restrict student enrolment in courses deemed to provide insufficient value or fail to produce desirable outcomes. Sunak said, quote, The UK is home to some of the best universities in the world. 
and studying for a degree can be immensely rewarding, but too many young people are being sold a false dream and end up doing a poor quality course at the taxpayer's expense that doesn't offer the prospect of a decent job at the end of it. Sunak's comments come after the findings of a 2020 study by the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which revealed a staggering one in five graduates, equivalent to about 70,000 people a year, would have been financially better off not going to university at all. The opposition have condemned the government's proposals, accusing Sunak of an attack on aspiration, which they say will make it harder for already disadvantaged pupils to access higher education. The contentious debate has also raised questions concerning the numbers of students affected and the specific subjects that may come under course restrictions. Speaking on ITV's Good Morning Britain, Education Minister Robert Halfon repeatedly refused to give details on any degrees that could be subject to recruitment limits, but insisted the policy was not an attack on arts and humanities. So, George, what's this all about? Why has this been such a big story in the news this week and where do you stand on it all? I think the key word here is, is value um, and, and what we understand education to be for. There's this sense that, you know, you have to get a return on your investment in a degree and that return is considered in, in economic or kind of earning potential, which is a kind of an understandable take when we think about the government that's in power now. But I personally don't think that's how we should be thinking about education. I mean, education is about exploring exploring creativity and thinking freely and my concern with this is that there's there will be an attempt to um, dictate what is seen as valuable what is seen as worth studying um, what is worth thinking about um, what is worth critiquing perhaps um, because it doesn't result in a, a kind of a valuable um, quote-unquote job um, and and an income so I think it's it's um it's potentially very dangerous. Yeah. So do you, do you think there's a snobbery here around arts and humanity courses that um, was being sort of refuted on Good Morning Britain? Why do you think these courses need defending? You know, why are they so important? If we're if we're going to kind of live in a society, then we, we need to constantly be questioning and exploring and creating uh, new understandings of that society, new understandings of the societies that have come before and hopefully to produce new societies in the future. The idea that we should have to defend like why art or um, the studies of humanities is is valid um, is is quite shocking actually. Yeah, we don't know exactly which courses they're talking about, but I think any kind of value systems being applied to, to to fields of study is is really problematic. I mean, I think you know when I was growing up, like media studies was seen as sort of a lesser thing to do. Nowadays, like I can't think of anything more relevant. These things shift as history moves. Um, we shouldn't be dictating what is or isn't important. We certainly shouldn't be allowing the government to be dictating what is or isn't important in terms of education, um, because then you know we begin on a, on a road towards saying what isn't isn't important in terms of culture more broadly, mm. um, which yeah, we know is a slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, just to take this sort of back to the source a little bit, do we need to think about earlier intervention to help students make the right choices about courses and understand you know what their career development looks like? You know, there are apprenticeships. Surely this is more of a a before the course issue and then an after the course issue about joining up recruitment and better university career support. So what's your what's your take on the pre and post care of students who are coming through higher education? I think having all the options made available to you um, is certainly a good thing. And I think apprenticeships are a really valuable kind of option for people to pursue. Um, I think it does come back to that question of like what we see university for. Uh, and I think tuition fees are a major part of this as well. I mean, I think that this idea that because fees are so high, um, people need to get a solid return on their investment is slightly missing the point that 
the fees don't necessarily have to be quite so high, which would change um, how we value um, education. So if, if you're not having to invest uh, so much money in, in, educate, in education, then you won't necessarily feel the need to have this kind of job-oriented, uh, income-oriented return on your investment. Mm-hmm. And actually, it could be something more creative, more playful, and more pedagogically experimental. That said, people also want to have you know a, an understanding of what kinds of jobs they can do. And I think there are lots of different ways of, of pursuing education, like such as different types of university courses. Polytechnics is a model that we've had in the past, which are more kind of vocational. I think having a full range of options and making those available, yeah, for sure, it's, it's, it's worthwhile. You probably saw that last week, University of Edinburgh had students disrupting their graduation ceremony by chanting, pay your workers in support of striking lecturers. Would a more effective way for the government to improve the quality of education be maybe to resolve these industrial disputes with academics? For sure. I mean, I think that this conversation is not going to do anything to make working conditions for lecturers and other academics better. If anything, it's going to create more paranoia, um, more distress, and put more pressure on courses to kind of justify themselves as being valuable or relevant, um, which might mean sort of packing in more students and putting more pressure on on the academics themselves. So I think like this conversation should certainly be held alongside broader conversations um, on the structural issues affecting workers in in the higher education sector. Okay, thank you. Um, We're going to move on to the culture section now. so, George, you're the curator of the Future Observatory at the Design Museum, and we know that you've got a number of new exhibits that are really relevant to the things we've covered on today's show. Can you tell us a little bit more about them, give us the insider info? Yeah, certainly can. Um, so, yeah, it's a really exciting time uh, right now at the Design Museum. We've got two um, free displays on show, both of which have been curated with the Future Observatory team, which is a new design museum team focusing on design responses to the climate emergency. Um, so there's one show... Which which is called Islands, um, which is part of the annual Design Researchers in Residence program. Um, We have four amazing researchers who've been pursuing individual projects sort of around this theme of islands, something we're exploring both geographically and metaphorically. So we've got projects looking at typography and the Celtic languages and the kind of embodied knowledge uh, about land and weather in those languages. And we've got a project on laundry um, and the kind of everyday domestic practice of doing laundry and thinking about kind of communal infrastructure for doing laundry. We've got a project on pigeons, uh, in specifically in London, thinking about how actually uh, we might be able to create an agricultural system by bringing pigeons back into our everyday lives rather than pushing them away as pests. Uh, and we have a project on deep sea mining, um, which is a kind of connected to that conversation we were having earlier around uh, electric car batteries, um, actually thinking about where some of the materials come from um, that are going into our green technologies. That's the island show. Wow, that sounds amazing. I feel like the laundry one, that's the one I need to go to. Is there is there anything else you want to point us to? Yeah, and then there's another show which is called um, How to Build a Low Carbon Home. Um, again, very relevant to some of the things we've been talking about today. This is a show all about embodied carbon um, and the materials that we're using to, to build our homes going forward. It's part of a bigger project that we're doing called Low Carbon Housing to essentially try and persuade mass house builders to adopt new models of construction. Um, and the way that we're doing that with the show is basically introducing our broad sort of museum public to three key materials. They're nothing revolutionary. It's wood, stone and straw. And we're featuring the work of architects um, such as Will Thistleton, 
material cultures um, and group work, and particularly their collaboration with Web Yates engineers, their work with Stone. So it's a really exciting exhibition. It kind of is talking about construction, hopefully in quite a dynamic and fun way. There's some really cool tools and um, videos of quarries and uh, robots cutting wood, and there's some things you can touch, and there's some one-to-one samples of full-scale models as well. Brilliant. So are both of those on now? Both of those are on now. Both of them are free. Um, Islands ends in September and How to Build a Low Carbon Home ends next March. Great. And then uh, finally, uh, Avid listeners will know we released a new audio tour of London to our podcast feed the other week. This is the first audio tour of a two-part series led by architect and royal academician Eric Parry, visiting London's two historic cities, Westminster and the City of London. Eric Parry Architects is responsible for designing some of the most significant projects in London today, with many of its important architectural works clustered in the City of London and Westminster. So Open Cities worked with Eric Parry Architects to create a two-part series of print and audio tours celebrating this contribution. The first episode focuses on Westminster and you can tune in now on the Open City podcast feed. George, thank you so much for coming onto the London. We've really enjoyed having you here and listening to your insight. Uh, where can listeners go to keep up to speed with what you're up to? Um, you can come to the Design Museum. <laughs> you can see those free shows. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at G Kafka. You can follow me on Twitter if you want. It's not very interesting. At G underscore Kafka. Go with well, Instagram. Don't, don't undersell yourself. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.